Welcome to the Game Changers NFT podcast, a show that highlights incredible women who are changing the game. I'm your host, Yin Hin. The Game Changers is a unique Web 3.0 project with the purpose of providing access to capital for women entrepreneurs, leveraging the power of NFTs. We are creating a dynamic virtuous cycle, art by women, featuring inspiring role models, generating revenue to fund women-led ventures and funds. Each episode, we sit down with a game changer that makes part of our collection. And every conversation is packed with personal stories, discoveries, and lessons learned within the blockchain and beyond. For more information, you can visit GameChangeNFT.com to learn more. Please enjoy. My name is Avery Agnini, and I'm a game changer. In this episode, we sit down with Avery Akinini, president of Vayner NFT. She leads the company's mission to build long-term strategic NFT projects for the world's leading intellectual property owners, servicing brands, celebrities, athletes, and associates, looking to incentivize and reward brand advocacy and customer loyalty. This conversation is packed with Avery's energy and enthusiasm for the NFT space. We talk about so many things, from her history in the corporate world at Target and Google, how Gary V scribbles and doodles for their NFT project sold for millions at Christie's and why. Ultimately, it's about community and connection that she and the Vayner team have created and cultivated. Avery has been on a rocket ship ride over the last decade, and it's clear she is a supernova herself. Please enjoy this fun conversation with Avery Akinani. Hi, Avery. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here again. I am excited for you to join. And also, thank you for being a game changer. And we will talk all about that and all of your incredible work as president of Vayner NFT. I always like to focus on rewinding someone's highlight reel and learning a lot more about them before their professional career. So if you don't mind sharing first, where did you grow up? I love that you start with that. And I think it's such a nice thing to learn about women in business, people in business, who they are outside of work and in their real life and in their core. I'm originally from Nashville, Tennessee, which is very much a hot commodity these days. But growing up in Nashville, it was more of a small regional tourism city. Nashville has long been recognized as music city. A lot of incredible country music there. But in addition to country music, it's rock and roll, it's songwriters, it's bluegrass, it's rap, and music plays everywhere. Everyone comes to Nashville looking to make it in the music industry. And it's a really cool culture within Nashville. Also a relatively traditional, more Southern culture. There's a lot of that in Nashville and I was fortunate to go to an amazing school called University School right across the street from Vanderbilt. I was fascinated by California. I think that Laguna Beach was probably very popular when I was in high school. And I thought, wow, like if I could just be in California, that would be just so cool and so different. And I could live on the beach. I couldn't even imagine anything better. So that drove me to go to college in San Diego So I went to University of San Diego and had the best time ever. It was 180 degrees different from Nashville, a huge cultural adjustment, but I loved it. All my college friends are from California and from the West Coast, learned all about avocado toast and smoothies and (laughs) California living. thought, oh my God, I'm never going to leave San Diego. This must be heaven. But life goes on. And after college, I started working at Target and was very fortunate to hear about what was happening in the San Francisco Bay Area in the early 2010s. And keep in mind that the iPhone came out in 2009. So shortly thereafter, technology started to really change people's lives really fast. And getting access to information 
at this unprecedented rate was fascinating to me. The fact that you could communicate so easily and quickly. And yes, we had Blackberries, but this iPhone was this whole new thing. And I was super curious what was going on in the Bay Area. And I had a couple of friends who were working up there. I had one girlfriend who worked at Google in the legal department. She was telling me how amazing it was. And there was free lunch and working with the smartest people ever. And they were building these technologies that were changing how people could access information. I thought, wow, that's incredible. If I could get a job there, that would be outstanding. So I applied and I got a job at Google. A couple of weeks later, off I was in the San Francisco Bay Area. So what was your job at Target? And then what was your new role at Google? My job at Target was they have this management training program. It's called Executive Team Leader, where they teach you all about different sides of the business. Everything from supply chain to loss prevention to marketing to how to manage thousands of staff. So they have this very specific management training program across Target corporate. And it's an incredible way to learn about the retail business. Everything from allocation planning to what's going to move things off shelves to how to move things between the different districts based on sales velocity. Amazing. It's like a crash course in all things retail. Yes. So the role at Google was an account strategist. So I started off on their mid-market team, helping mid-market businesses understand Google's technology and what they had to offer from an advertising perspective. Imagine explaining how search marketing works to an advertiser. And that was like mind-blowing. Hey, someone searches for your product. You can be there. And you only have to pay if someone actually goes to your website. And they're like, whoa, that's insane. And then we have retargeting when that was a new thing. We're like, hey, if someone put something in your cart and didn't buy it, you could show them the shoes that they looked at. And 2012, this was very groundbreaking. So that was really fun. And I did that for a few years before moving to the Google Media Lab team, which specializes in managing Google marketing investments. So I did that for a little bit. I was on the YouTube team for a little bit, helping explain how YouTube could replace television for some of the top TV investors. And then I moved into DoubleClick, which is Google's programmatic arm. As you described that, it reminds me of my favorite Queen song, which is Radio Gaga. But the idea is the the expiration of radio as TV emerges. And really, YouTube has replaced in so many ways traditional TV. So while at DoubleClick, then you go from DoubleClick to VaynerMedia, which is where you are now. But how did that transition? Because it seems like VaynerMedia has touched on all the things that you've done prior to your career, but I would love to just hear that transition. Yeah. So I was working on the DoubleClick team, which was also amazing. During that time, I'd moved from San Francisco to New York with my now husband, but at the time boyfriend. We wanted to move to New York because New York was where everything was happening. And my husband is an investor. So he was launching this new fund and it was so exciting. And we thought, hey, let's go where all the big decisions get made and get a little taste of New York. We'll be back in San Francisco in two years. Of course, we fell in love with New York. We think, oh my God, this is amazing. This must be heaven. This is a trend in my life is wherever I am. I'm super happy and I think it's the perfect place. We're in New York working at DoubleClick. DoubleClick was actually a Google acquisition. Because of that, it operated at the time in a little bit of a different way, which was fun for me because a lot of Google systems, the amazing benefits of those, you got that when you're part of DoubleClick, but you also got to be part of a smaller team that was fast moving and working really closely with other industry players because of the nature of the business of DoubleClick, which is inherently more of an aggregating technology than an owned technology. We had Gary Vaynerchuk come in and do an inspirational talk for our organization, famous keynote speaker. I was just very impressed with how Gary delivers a message in a consolidated way, in an empathetic way, in a way that feels so real and practical to the audience. So different from everyone that I'd engaged with from an advertising executive standpoint. 
we had a chance to chat for a little bit and he was like, let's catch up and be in touch. This was 2015 or 2016. So it was a while before I actually took the jump to join Boehner. But from there, I got to know Jeff Nicholson, who was the chief media officer at the time. And he started to recruit me into Boehner telling me about what they were looking to build as this incredible human organization that was going to be changing the game of how advertising agencies operated in the independent space. So I thought, why not take a little bit of a risk? I have a chance to learn something. They offered me a role of a VP, which was a huge step up at the time for me title-wise. I think I can take on this challenge. I'm going to learn a lot of different skill sets that I didn't learn at Google. Join VaynerMedia. The first six months were very challenging, just of adjusting to more of an entrepreneurial organization and a much smaller organization. The professional services industry is inherently very different from a technology industry. So it's a lot of fresh thinking every day. But a couple of months in, I started to really love it. And it was incredible to see our hard work really paying off in such a visible way. You can directly see your contributions to the business. We were going to win this and then we get to hire people and train them. And then all of a sudden they're off running by themselves. I started to really love that. Proposed this idea of moving to Asia to start our business in VaynerMedia Asia Pacific. What year did you join VaynerMedia and how many people was it at the time? You mentioned it was smaller, certainly smaller than Google, but just to frame that. I joined VaynerMedia in 2018. And at the time we were maybe 700 or 800 people and now we're about 1,500. Google was hundreds of thousands. <laughs> very different size of organization. I think that difference helped me as a leader and as an individual performer as well, just think in a totally different capacity. When you then had the idea to expand into Asia, it was from zero employees to over 150. What was your thought process there in terms of where to build, how to build, what countries? Vayner had actually looked into opening in Asia a couple of times before. And for various reasons, it just stalled out or it never happened. We'd had an office in London since maybe 2015 or 2016, and that had gone okay. Gary was interested in expanding to Asia, but we were originally thinking we we're going to wait until there was a flagship client who was going to expand with us. I wanted to move to Asia because my husband was doing a bunch of work in China and was very interested in being there because we were seeing so much growth and so much innovation coming from the APAC region, particularly countries like China. Just from a technology perspective, we're light years ahead. And then from a business growth perspective, working with many global multinationals, we look year over year, people are consuming at a much higher growth rate and people are coming online at a much higher growth rate. A lot of different reasons make it extremely interesting and exciting. So I was like, hey, I'm going to move to Asia. I want to do this for personal reasons. So I guess I'll be leaving the agency. And thank you so much. We'll certainly stay in touch. And they're like, Avery, why don't you just open our office? We set up this entity in Singapore, so you could just do that. I was like, okay, I guess I'll do that. <laughs> and it was a remarkably simple conversation. There were a couple of people we talked about joining, bringing with me from New York. It, that didn't end up happening. We brought one person from New York and then one person that I moved over from our London office who was actually originally from Hong Kong. So she was interested to move back too. And then one person from my New York office. But yeah, literally it was zero to 152 years later. And now I think they're over 200. And it's been amazing to see just the growth of our little region for Vayner in Asia. And you're way too humble to mention this, but I will for you that within two years, you won Independent Agency of the Year. And that was led by you, which is incredible. I feel like that's a whole separate podcast that I could ask you so much more about. How did then it shift to be now president of Vayner NFT? How did that transition? Everything was going really, really well in Asia. The first year was challenging because about seven months after we opened, COVID happened. 
that was for a major loop. We were cruising, we were growing, we were getting clients. We were starting to open up different offices outside of Singapore because we wanted to have this hub and spoke model. So we opened in Bangkok and Sydney and Tokyo and Hong Kong to support these regional partners. And along comes COVID, took everything to a screeching halt. Because Singapore is a hub market, most multinational companies have leaders who travel pretty constantly in between the region. So for example, going to Vietnam for a shoot is a very normal Tuesday for an ad agency exec in Singapore. COVID, of course, everyone's not traveling. There is a lot of scrutiny around mask wearing and following COVID protocols, because keep in mind that Asia had relatively recently gone through SARS. So they were taking it really, really seriously. Like if you're not wearing a mask in Singapore, you go to jail. So that was a cultural adjustment, but in an interesting way, it actually helped us really bond as a company because everyone was bonding together on Zoom. We developed really tight bonds as a team digitally. That became our team culture building because we were newer and we were smaller. We could adapt to that much faster than larger agencies who had thousands of employees who had an office culture and might not have been as digital first as Vayner's. But I knew that by December 2020, I was craving a little bit more connection to my friends and family in the States, especially with Singapore having the borders closed for such a long time. I was feeling a little bit homesick. Also thinking, I don't know how much longer this is going to go on for, and it could be quite a while. I don't know if this is going to be the most sustainable place for me to live, given all of these COVID precautions. So that was in my mind on a personal level. My husband also had taken this job back in the United States. So I was trying to sort that out from a personal perspective. I had dinner with Gary in December of 2020 to talk about what's next. It was like, great. Here's where we are with Asia. It's going really well have these offices opened up or working with Disney or working with YouTube or working with the largest banks, large P&G brands, all this incredible stuff. I feel like we're in a really good spot. And I think my work here is done. I'm going to marry Poppins out and come home. <laughs> and I was like, what's next? What should we do? And I wanted to do something that was a little bit entrepreneurial. I had loved my time at VaynerMedia, but I was like, I think I'm ready for a new challenge, how I could best serve the organization. I love how you say that and you're at one of the most entrepreneurial shops and you're like, I want to do something even more entrepreneurial, which says a lot about you, by the way. Yeah, I guess I've got a little dangerous taste for that, but I want to do something even more on my own, I would say. Gary started talking to me about this idea he had around building intellectual property around the values that he communicates in his content. So empathy, humility, kindness, and turning these into characters and then developing those characters over time. And he was like, I'm going to draw them and then I'm going to sell them as NFTs and I'm going to have a conference and it's going to be 13,000 tokens. And I was like, this is a lot. That is a very significant undertaking and who's going to buy them and how are we going to communicate that? And how are we going to get a stadium for 10,000 people and all these very practical things I was thinking. But I really believe in Gary as an operator and as an innovator and as an entrepreneur. So he launched that program in May of 2021. It did really well. And then in July of 2021, we officially opened Vayner NFT, taking the learnings from Friends and applying them to what we know about business and consulting and marketing from a traditional IP owner perspective. For those who don't know, and they're barely getting used to the jargon of blockchain and crypto and the letters NFT, for those who haven't seen Vayner NFT drawings, how would you describe them? NFTs are unique digital assets that you can own, you can store in your digital wallet, and they might unlock things for you. For example, VFriends get you access to a conference for three years. NFTs can have varying levels of utility and different varying levels of art. The VFriends iconography and design style is all done by Gary himself using Sharpies. Gary has these iconic drawings that he doodles on when he's thinking. 
And he actually drew each one of these characters by hand and then created these as NFTs, which were then sold 12,555 of them out to his fan base and the NFT community. And then very interestingly, they were also sold at Christie's in late 2021 for a seven-figure price tag. Five of them were sold for that, which is pretty impressive because if you look at the art, it's not exactly what would be perceived as traditional fine art. To say the least, and to describe it, it is comical in many ways, but also memorable. It grabs your attention. You do a double take, a triple take, and you're like, what is this that I'm looking at? And then also the fact that five of them sold at Christie's for a lot of money, seven figures. That is incredible. One question, just to take a step back. Why did you guys think that digital asset ownership would change the game? I was talking a little bit earlier around first joining Google in 2012 and what that was like, and just seeing so clearly that this was a technology that was going to change people's lives. Search did change many people's lives and it changed their ability to access information. I feel the same about digital asset ownership and I feel the same about the world of Web3. That access to information I would call is like Web1. Ability to communicate and access information would be web too. So that like you're reading information online, you're also writing information, you're creating content, you're communicating digitally. And then I think web three is you can read information, you can write information, you can own information and really use that as your digital identity. And I think self-expression has always governed branding and people wanting to align themselves with different designers, different hairstyles, different watches. Self-expression is very important to human psychology and how you present yourself really matters and how you present yourself in the digital world and what you have in your wallet, showing that off as who you are is something that is going to really matter in the next several years. So for us, I know we're very early to this technology, but we believe that your digital wallet and your digital persona are going to be incredibly important. I'm so glad we started this conversation knowing more about you and your background, because when you think about your professional background, also where you grew up in Nashville with all these creatives and musicians, it seems to be this perfect blend for you now in terms of combining all that. So at least focusing on your professional work where you worked at Target, you worked at Google and these brands, how do you think about the overlap of creating brand desirability of what is in your wallet, why it matters? would love to hear your thoughts on brand building. I think brand building matters in all facets, whether we're talking Walt Disney and what he did for building Disney World and movies and merchandise and these characters and lore that make you happy when you see Minnie Mouse, that creates an emotional connection to that character and how she acts. It's the reason that people want to wear Minnie Mouse headbands and get married at Disney World. It's the happiest place on earth because of that lore and that storytelling and that marketing that Walt Disney did so incredibly well and the Disney company continues to do so. So I think that brand building can happen in a lot of ways, but fundamentally it's creating not just products, but stories that people want to affiliate themselves with products that make people happy, stories that make people happy, those moments that make someone say, I'm a proud consumer of XYZ product. To me, marketing is a lot of that. And brand building comes in everything from how celebrities position themselves organically or more polished. All of that is marketing and packaging up how you want to be perceived. When people look at this and many who aren't familiar with it, they say, how do you value that? What is that worth? The idea of worth, it's completely subjective, certainly in this market. How do you think about valuing a brand? Well, there's obviously a very clear financial way you can value a brand. Share price is something that's heavily influenced by consumer sentiment, which I would say is heavily influenced by marketing. Companies do an amazing Super Bowl ad, and that makes you want to rush out and buy their product. It's funny because being on the marketing side, you see that. You're like, oh, we did this commercial, and then more people bought XYZ. It is immediate effect. 
You can also have times when marketing and doing the wrong thing actually hurts your brand. You do something that's a total faux pas and that backfires and then actually fewer people buy your brand or want to affiliate with it. So I think that in all contexts, including digital, you can see that really matter. In the world of NFTs, marketing matters a lot. One depends on how many of these can you sell and what's the floor price, et cetera, et cetera. Does that appreciate over time as you build the program? And also this consumer sentiment can majorly swing things. Oh my gosh, a celebrity has this. Now I'm going to buy more. There's a lot of speculation that happens in the market right now, and it's a little bit frothy. And I don't think that this moment is going to last forever in the world of NFTs, but I think brand building really matters in the world of Web3 and everywhere. And as an extension of that, I know in our prep call, I had asked a very ignorant question within this space of what the utility means in an NFT. And I believe Vayner NFTs were one of the first to do this, if not the first, that it's not just an image, that it's not just artwork, that there's utility in it. Can you describe what that is and also how you guys incorporate utility? Absolutely. I think in the future, in the coming years, utility will be everything from like a real estate deed to your dental records. There can be very utilitarian use cases for NFTs. What I'm referring to right now is more like perks. So for example, I hold this specific project and just today they announced they're doing airdrop. So I already have one NFT and they're giving me another just for being a holder. That's an example of a utility. It's like a little perk. You also have things like vFriends, which is what you're referring to. And vFriends, if you're a holder of this Genesis token, you had access to a conference we're doing for three years. The conference includes performances from people like Snoop Dogg and incredible speakers. It's going to be amazing. Anyone who's listening should definitely get a ticket to VCon, but it's exclusively for holders who have access to the tickets and they can sell the tickets if they have multiples. One last question on NFTs before we pivot to all the game changer questions. But what about gaming? There's a lot of hype and discussion about what NFTs can do in gaming, what that expansion could look like. Would just love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, anyone who is into gaming is very familiar with the concept of digital asset ownership. It's the backstory of how the Ethereum blockchain was created was actually by Vitalik, who was a gamer and was frustrated by the fact that he bought a sword and then he lost in the game and then it's gone. He was like, what? This is my sword. I own it. I should choose to sell it, not have the game take it away. But if anyone listening has kids who play Roblox, you're familiar with this idea of them buying things digitally. This idea of playing in a virtual reality experience that's digital, but there's a very real economy. Oh, I know. They beg me for more dollars all the time to buy their digital goods. Exactly. (laughs) So imagine those digital goods don't just live in one game, but they can move across games. That's a perfect example of how gaming sort of starts to bleed into the world of NFTs. Gaming, though, the big difference is games are owned by a company with a CEO and a board. In the world of Web3, they don't need to be. They could be owned by the community could be owned by a DAO, owned by an organization who does not have a CEO or is not a centralized authority. So I think that's the big difference between more traditional gaming economies and then moving into the world of Web3. How does it work, though, if your game is on a certain chain? Can you move chains with that? Or is it a similar concept to ownership? Is it that chain's ownership of that good? That's a really good question. You could theoretically move chains or do something that's cross-chain, which I think is what we'll start seeing in the future. We've got Flow and Solana and Ethereum. Could you move things across the chains? I think probably the answer is yes, but let's see where that goes in the future. As of right now, though, it's not like the chains are interoperable. You can think about it like using social media apps. You might have Snapchat and Twitter and Instagram, and they're all distinct and similar, but it's not like your Snapchats show up on your Twitter. I could ask you hours and hours of questions on that too, but I'm going to pivot then to the game changer questions, starting with what do you think is the most exciting thing about the space today? 
The most exciting thing about the space today is that we are still so incredibly early and there is a tiny, super vocal minority of people who are already deep in the world of Web3. And I'm most excited for the fact that millions more are interested, are coming, are crypto curious, and we can just feel this tidal wave behind us building up with people who are about to join Web3. What do you think is an area that is most misunderstood? It's still so early in terms of information discovery and content that people are trying to consume. But what do you think is the most misunderstood? Probably the most misunderstood is around environmental concerns. Ethereum does use a lot of computational power, but if you look at other blockchains like a Matic, Solana, or a Tezos, there's so much in the world of NFTs that is not heavily computational based and Ethereum's changing the way that they measure proof of work in the future. So I think that that concern will be alleviated well and forever in the next couple of months. But I think that's something that's very misunderstood by a lot of people. Will that affect the gas fees? Yes, you know, those gas fees are not fun. <laughs> now, for our listeners, you sound so fluent in the space now. You only learned about it a few years ago. What resources do you recommend for people who are new that they want to learn? Or how did you do it if you can share those resources? Well, I'm still new to crypto. I tell people this all the time who will say, oh, you're an expert in all things metaverse. Honestly, I've only been in this space for like a little over a year. I'm still new. I'm still learning. I'm fortunate to be in a position where I can hire a lot of people who've been day ones in this space to be my guides and tutors. And I'm very lucky that they teach me something new every day. This is how you stake this and switch it to this different chain. And it's fun to be a student of the game. And if you talk to a lot of knowledgeable people in the space, it's like that Socrates quote, I know what I don't know. The more I learn, the more I realize, actually, I don't know everything about this at all. So it's fun to be a student of the game. With that said, if you are sort of crypto curious, you want to explore a little bit, there are a couple of resources I would recommend. My BFF has some incredible content. They've got a really great live stream. We did a couple of months back. You can play that recording from My BFF. You can learn from some of the resources they have available. 1.37 PM is also incredible. That's actually a Vayner-owned publisher. We put out a lot of educational content there. VFriends has really detailed content of how to get onboarded into the world of NFTs. And of course, Vayner NFT, we put out a lot of good stuff too. So I would encourage people to check us out. NFT Now is another partner that I think from a publication perspective has done an incredible job. I will check out all those things and we'll make sure to link those to the show notes as well. Going back to you, in a field that's dominated by men, and you worked in tech also, that demographic profile hasn't shifted much. And I think in blockchain, it's also even more magnified. What unique lens do you bring to this? How are you a game changer in the space? A lot of the early builders of Web3 were sort of gamer nerdy dudes. And in the past, particularly the past year, though, of course, there were some OG women, they need to be receiving their due as well. Because I think a lot of them have not been as vocal as some of the initial OG leaders. But there are so many incredible women who have been there since day one. So first, I'll say it is not only a voice club, and it never has been. But in the past year, I think we've seen a lot more mainstream people shift into this world of Web3 and communicate around it. People who have a business background, people who understand IP, people who are lawyers, architects, creators who are coming in from different backgrounds who might not only be looking at this from an OG crypto perspective, but also how do we bring more people in? That is the middle ground that I'm able to bring is understanding what's happening in the world of Web3 today and paying homage to those who set up the foundation for this game-changing opportunity, while also understanding the motives of the billions of people that we need to onboard and thinking about the right ways to do that, whether that's through leading voices in the space who are celebs or who are brands or who are entertainment providers. I think hitting that intersection is really the opportunity. 
When you think about your professional career rise from being in the executive leadership team at a retailer to Google and all the businesses along the way, and then amplifying VaynerMedia and also now Vayner NFT, you've had a lot of success. What does success mean to you? Well, thank you so much for saying that. That's incredibly kind. I feel like I'm at the very beginning of my journey. So I'm 32, and I think I've got a lot of life left in me for what I can bring both to businesses and to the world, more importantly. I've been fortunate to have some career progression in a very short period of time. And I think that is a result of being ready to take on any challenge and resourceful and also having an incredible team and support system around me that really enables a lot of these opportunities. Everyone from my family, to my husband, to my teams, to a great boss in Gary Vee who saw something in me that enables a lot of this to happen. Success to me means being happy with what you do every day and proud of who you are when you go to sleep. It's doing right by the world, making the world a better place than you had it yesterday. You seem to get it every single day, and that is fantastic. One thing that people know about me is my focus on failure. For me, I find it to be an opportunity. You've had amazing seats on amazing rocket ships. And when people hear this story, they're like, gosh, Avery, she is just go, go, go. And it seems like this chart of up and to the right. I'd love for you to share with our listeners if there's any moment of struggle or adversity, whether personally or professionally, that would amplify this growth. I'd be curious to see how you think about the word failure, whether you've had it or what you can share about it. Absolutely. Every single day. I think that that is just part of the game, especially out very in front of something and you're in an environment that you are very new to. I mentioned I was new to the agency world at Vayner. My first few decks were terrible. Didn't land. I didn't get it. I was coming in from totally a corporate brand marketer perspective and not thinking about it like I should. And when I first got to Asia Pacific, one of the biggest agencies wrote this thing about how they thought everybody hated VaynerMedia. And I was like, oh, but we just got here. Why do you already hate me? I have five people on my team and one client. I think being very different also attracts quite a bit of scrutiny because you're out in front and you're being vocal about something. If I'm talking about that, I think social media is awesome. Somebody says, I think social media is ruining the world. When I'm talking about, I think NFTs are going to change the game. People are saying NFTs are killing the environment. You get that scrutiny that's just part of it. You have to be able to roll with those punches and embrace a mix of success and failure and know that you are on this rocket ship to the right. So if you get a couple of bumps and bruises along the way, that's certainly part of it. Even some of the projects that we've done within Vayner NFT, I think broadly successful, but are there small things that we've done wrong? Yes, definitely. Oh, I wish we didn't communicate this way. Oh, I wish we had changed the FAQs. Wish we'd had a smaller supply or a larger supply or, oh shoot, like it sold out in a minute, like not enough consumers could get it. Little things like that you realize are just part of the day-to-day failures that also help you understand and get better over time. And I think in this particular ecosystem right now, there's no blueprint for success. So you're writing that blueprint and you have to know that you hit a lot of times, but sometimes you don't. It seems like you're following your own path and creating that trajectory where in Asia, you did this in two years, fantastic, phenomenal growth. And now within the NFT space in less than two years, it is one of the biggest brands within the space. And from what I understand about Vayner NFT, you're almost the Vayner McKinsey of the NFT space. People go to you, celebrities, companies and say, how do I do this? And you give them this template, you're the place to be. And so in less than two years, hats off to you. That's incredible. What's next for Avery Akinani? We're only eight months into Vayner NFT, so very in the early stages, but where I want to take the company is to really be that Bain or McKinsey of Web3, where we are the consultants, helping everyone from the largest auto manufacturers in the world, to largest beauty companies in the world, understand and join the world of Web3, if that means getting them set up to take crypto, having them support major NFT programs, building communities in the world of Web3. That's what we're so excited about. 
as part of that, helping bring Web3 to the masses. So I'm really excited about that. And I think it will be a multi-year journey for us to really get to where we want to be. We're still barely scratching the surface of what I think is possible. Beyond that, I have a dream to one day run a brand. You could probably hear in this podcast, I really believe in brand building. I believe in effective marketing. I believe in community building. And I'd love to launch a brand one day that's some kind of consumer packaged product, but makes people happy inside. I'm sure that brand is coming very quickly. You are a supernova and one to watch. So thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a pleasure and I appreciate everyone listening and taking the time.